All right, and welcome to our July bonus episode of Beyond the Breakers. So if you're listening to my voice right now, thank you for, for joining up on the Patreon. Uh, we definitely appreciate the support, and we're happy to bring you even more uh, shipwreck and maritime-related content here. Uh, so this is a bonus episode. I'm joined here again by Katie. Katie, say hello to everyone. Hey, everyone. All right. So we're going to do kind of a different bonus episode this week. It's kind of an expansion of our most recent uh, episode that we released about the HMAS Voyager and her collision with the Melbourne. I mentioned that we would be you know, doing this as our bonus episode, and this is that, uh, is that episode expansion for you. Uh, so again, this isn't really a news story we're giving you here. More of a spinoff episode. So the Voyager, of course, we're not going to see her again. She is she is not going to be in this part of the story. She's gone. All gone. Uh, gone in two pieces. I think they ended up using the stern section for live fire practice, but I could be <laughs> mixing that up with our story today. Um, uh, however, we will, of course, be talking more about the carrier Melbourne from the Royal Australian Navy. So today, our supporting character, I guess, in addition to the Melbourne, is the American destroyer Frank E. Evans. So as I started researching the Voyager episode, this one came up almost immediately in my search results as well, uh, simply because it had a, uh, a similar incident with the same carrier. So let's talk a little bit about the Evans. Uh, the Evans was an Allen M. Sumner-class destroyer that entered service at the tail end of World War II in May of 1945. So primarily escort duty, you know, protecting ships from Japanese submarines, uh, aircraft. This is kind of the last desperate gasps of the Japanese Empire. Uh, this, is, this is kind of in the era of increasing uh, kamikaze-style attacks, things like that having to be dealt with. So yeah, she served not very long, but, you know, pretty well, seems like, during World War II. She was put in reserve in 1949, but of course that's just in time for the outbreak of the Korean War to bring her back into service. The Evans served actively throughout Korea, earned the nickname Lucky Evans. Could, That's bold. Could be. Don't <laughs> That's do, bold. Again, we say that on the show a lot. Don't do that <laughs> don't to your do ship. Don't, uh, don't hamstring your ship like that. Don't the call her that. The is going to laugh at that and say, watch. And the, the Grey Ghost, also a cool name. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we'll come back. We'll circle back to that nickname, Lucky Evans. In Korea, her primary roles were bombarding shore batteries, rescuing downed pilots, carrier escort, and coordinating airborne bombing missions. So a little bit of everything. Versatile ship can can kind of do a little bit of everything. Impressive. Mm-hmm. See, Evans also served in Vietnam, pretty much a similar capacity as to what she had done in Korea. Uh, she served as part of what's referred to as the gun line. Uh, this is basically a series of uh, ships lined up offshore, bombarding uh, in support of ground forces. Uh, she received citations for her offshore fire support to ground troops in Da Nang and Quang Nai. I apologize to any speakers of Vietnamese for my pronunciation there. Uh, that was in 1967. Um, so in 1969, uh, after returning to Long Beach for refitting, she returned to the war theater after stopping at Pearl Harbor to pick up some extra sailors. Here she was under the command of Albert S. McElmore. Uh, she acted in support of Operation Daring Rebel. Um, so for anyone interested in the history of the Marines, uh, this is a pretty interesting episode. Uh, as far as combined Navy and Marine operations go, uh, this one's pretty impressive from a military standpoint. They had the 1st Battalion of the 26th Marines, supported by the Evans, in this operation claiming 303 enemy dead with the loss of only 2 and 59 wounded. Huh? Pretty pretty impressive, pretty yeah. surgical 
uh, example of, uh, of what the Marines were up to. Uh, so after this, she sailed back to Subic Bay, I believe it's pronounced. I kind of want to say Subic, but it's not in the Balkans, <laughs> so I'm going to go with Subic. Uh, Subic Bay in the Philippines to rearm and join up with a CETO naval group to conduct joint naval maneuvers with ships from the U.S., Great Britain, Australia, New Zealand, the Philippines, and Thailand. CETO, that's, uh, that's the equivalent of NATO in Southeast Asia, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the Pacific version of NATO, basically. Got it. Dropping my, dropping my notes here already. All right, so the goal of these maneuvers uh, was to rehearse surface actions, anti-submarine warfare, and carrier actions in different fleets' uh, configurations. Just kind of moving stuff around, making sure uh, everyone knows what to do, everyone knows where to be in different situations. So Admiral Crabb of the Royal Australian Navy. It's a solid name. That's a cool it's a, it's Australian good, Navy it's a good, name. It's a good ocean-related name for an admiral. Yeah. Uh, admiral Crabb of the Royal Australian Navy was in command of Task Force, or Task Group, rather, 472.1. Admiral Crabb was aboard the RAN carrier Melbourne, captained by John Stevenson. So we had talked a little bit about this before the episode. It's, it's kind of confusing because you have the overall commanding admiral on this ship, but he's not in command of that ship. There's another captain for that ship. So Stevens is in operational command of the carrier itself. Stevens' son. Stevens' son, Stevens not Stevens. Is the guy from the last episode. Not Stevens. <laughs> we have like we have like six main characters in these two episodes, and they just have variations of the same names. So Stevenson would have been in command of the Melbourne's actual maneuvers. Now Admiral Crabb, you know, being a prudent fellow and remembering what had happened uh, only several years earlier with the Melbourne. He made it clear to escort ship commanders that any maneuvers in the vicinity of the carrier were to begin with a turn away from the carrier. You know, under no circumstances, basically, are you to turn back towards the carrier. Don't do it. Don't think about it. First rule of Fight Club in the CETO theater is don't turn towards the carrier. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, Stevenson, uh, he had talked about how... Uh, or I'm sorry, not Stevenson. Uh, Macklemore, the captain of the Evans... He said that Stevenson had invited the captains of the other ships in the exercise to dinner before they left the Philippines. Uh, and at this dinner, he had actually explained in detail about the Voyager tragedy, how it had taken place, why it had happened. And he had issued these written instructions uh, on how it could be avoided in the future. So on the night of June 2nd uh, and, and the early morning of June 3rd of 1969, Evans had been selected to serve as plane guard for the Melbourne for nighttime landing exercises. Do you remember plane guard? Yeah, what is it? Like, is, is there the ones in charge of, uh, they're, they're the point person for kind of any any emergencies or any assistance that needs to be rendered. They're, they're the, the guy to do it. Yeah, they, uh, they're there to pick up pilots who end up in the water during these, these landing exercises. Again, in the daytime, that's done by helicopter during these night landing and takeoff trials. That's typically done by a destroyer. So they had been selected as plane guard for these landing exercises. The ships were darkened uh, and all openings to the interior shut to simulate what this would have been like uh, in a combat situation. At about midnight, Captain Macklemore of the Evans retired to his quarters. Now, again, Macklemore, at this point, being, a again, a pretty prudent fellow, he left standing orders with the bridge watch, uh, which was made up of two junior lieutenants, Ronald Ramsey and James Hobson. These orders were summon the captain whenever there was doubt as to safe speed or course. Summon the captain when course or speed were changed for any reason. 
summon the captain when higher command ordered any formation change, and finally, summon the captain when in any doubt about whether or not to summon the captain. (laughs) I feel like summoning the captain is very important here. There's a common (laughs) theme there, and it involves summoning the captain. Again, these are very junior officers. Different sources that I read didn't exactly agree on the details, so I don't really want to list too many of them. Some of them claim that Ramsey had just recently been certified. Some claim that he hadn't, that he had failed the exam. <laughs> um, Hobson did not have uh, officer on deck certification. So again, the, the small details are, they don't all totally agree. The bottom line is these are two lieutenants that you can just tell based on the orders from the captain, unless everything is going 100% scripted, come get me. Like they're, they're not in a position where they're supposed to be making decisions or making any sort of change. So they're uh, just eyeballs seeing what's going on. They are eyeballs. <laughs> that is essentially what they are here. So the Evans was ordered into plain guard position uh, once more at 3.10 a.m. on June the 3rd. So small difference. In our previous episode, I talked about how this one had some eerie similarities. This is one of the kind of small differences. Rather than being off of the starboard bow, uh, it's off the port bow of the Melbourne, uh, the Evans is. So this is kind of the opposite of what we saw in the Voyager. Uh, so instead of the expected turn away from the Melbourne, so Evans is on its port. If it's turning away from Melbourne, it should also be turning to port. The expected maneuver, the one that Crab and Stevenson had been very, very adamant about. However, Evans turned to starboard, taking it on a collision course with Melbourne. And was the captain summoned? Uh, He was not. Yeah, he was not, in fact. So unlike what we saw with the Voyager, where it's possible, again, kind of of weak, as we talked about, by accusing the Melbourne of being negligent uh, with their communication in the Voyager episode, here we, we pretty much know that that's not the case. As soon as this turn starts happening... Stevenson sends a message. He, he radios a message to the Evans saying, quote, watch it. You are on a collision course. So being very clear, like, essentially, what are you doing? Like, you are, you are doing the opposite of what is good So he right did now. the thing that last time they were chastised for not doing. Exactly. And he did it, it seems like, almost immediately. So um, good. However, should be good. pay attention. The legalese will uh, come in later. Read his, read his words very, very carefully for Uh-oh. the exact words that he uses. He says, watch it, you are on a collision course. But we'll come back to that later. Petty Officer Stanley Hears of the Melbourne uh, said, quote, I couldn't believe it was going to happen again. I just stood there and said a prayer. Now, one detail I couldn't really find, that quote kind of implies it, I couldn't find for sure if any officers or crew had been on the Melbourne for the first incident. So I don't know if this would have been like total deja vu for anyone there saying this is exactly what happened last time. That would be so bizarre. Yeah, I couldn't totally establish if that was the case for anyone. So they're making this turn. This turn that they're making is a little bit more back directly towards the carrier than our Voyager episode was. There's actually a really good graphic of it. If you look actually on the Wikipedia page for this incident, there's a very good graphic illustrating how this went down. So at first it kind of appeared that the Evans would be able to clear the carrier safely, very closely, but but avoiding a collision. But then they made one final turn that brought the ship directly under the bow of the Melbourne. So we have the almost exact same situation playing out in the opposite direction. Were they kind of like nose to nose coming in at each other? Kind of. And then there's a final turn where it's more, uh, more perpendicular. Oh, okay. So Petty Officer Ron Baker 
of the Melbourne's radio room. Uh, he said, quote, It was like riding over a piece of corrugated iron on a bicycle. There was a shuddering as we went over something, and the initial reaction was we've run aground. Of course, this was all split-second thinking, and then we realized we were in 1,100 fathoms of water. So the chances of running aground were pretty slim. Uh, another thought that went through our heads was that we'd hit a submarine, because we knew there was a, sub a Russian submarine in the area monitoring the exercise. So again, if any of these people had been on the Melbourne uh, for the previous incident, this is exactly the same thing. The same descriptions you hear, you know, this big, just crunching, grinding sound, you know, wondering what, what could we have possibly hit? Like we're, you know... It has to be very disconcerting and, yeah, just weird. Yeah. So from this point on, we could more or less read the same description of the collision from the Voyager episode. The destroyer rolls briefly before being cut entirely in half. The bow portion of the destroyer sinks in a matter of minutes, and the aft portion of the destroyer remains afloat. That's weird. Is there, like, something with ship construction that makes it likely that the aft in any ship that's cut in half like that? I guess, at least <laughs> float, at least with, like this, there with this style, I guess, with the destroyer. Uh, like, on our previous one, the theory was, or the idea was that that's where all the heavy guns were mm -hmm. in the bow. Yeah. So it sank almost immediately. Yeah, I don't know exactly. An engineer, someone could probably give us a good explanation yeah. of that. So the crew of the Melbourne, again, just like last time, immediately goes into rescue mode. They're dispatching lifeboats. They're diving into the water. One uh, one crew member even manages to dive in the water and lash the stern section of the Evans to the carrier to keep it afloat. They did all kinds of crazy stuff, um, sort of jerry-rigging together rescue equipment. They were using some different uh, ladders and ropes and things like that, uh, nets, uh, to, to get people out of the water, to get people over to the carrier. Pretty impressive yeah. and really quick actions from, from the Melbourne's crew. The impact, it was actually, it happened with enough force that one of the lookouts on the Evans was tossed directly onto the flight deck of the Melbourne. He suffered really serious injuries, but I, I do believe he survived. Wow. Yeah, and that's what we talked about before the show. You know, isn't there a pretty significant height difference between yeah. these ships? Yeah, yeah. And that, that, really that really shows the speed at which this collision happened. I believe I saw that they were moving with a combined speed of 40 knots toward each other Wow! Uh, at the time. So it's a very forceful Yeah, it's like a car accident if impact. you're not wearing your seatbelt and being mm -hmm. ejected really far. Wow. So yeah, overall 74 personnel on the Evans were killed. Most of those in the initial moments of the accident and primarily in the bow section of the ship. I believe 73 of the 74 uh, had been in the bow. Hmm. Among the dead were actually three brothers, Gregory, Gary, and Kelly Sage. This is actually the first time that a group of family members had been allowed to serve on a warship together since World War II, for exactly this reason. Wow. Yeah, that's just devastating to um, lose everybody. Yeah. Do you um, think they, do you know, did they reverse that policy, I wonder? I don't know. I would have yeah. to assume so. Thanks. Um, just... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know exactly. So 38 of the 111 in the front section were able to escape or were thrown overboard in the initial collision. So at, like we saw with Voyager, if, if, you, if you were able to escape the initial collision, if you were able to get off the ship, you had a very good chance of surviving. So now, let's fast forward a little bit here to the aftermath. Now, this is kind of the more interesting part. Lead up to this point has been kind of a repeat of our previous episode. So this is 1969. This is right in the thick of the Vietnam War. So with this you know, big alliance in the Pacific, it was considered pretty imperative that relations between allied nations uh, be preserved. So that overriding narrative from this point on is one of cover-up and blame-shifting. Which that's pretty par for the course with the Vietnam War, right? It's all the 
the lying and the cover up and things like that. The U.S. would never cover up anything from the Vietnam War. Attempts were made to distance the incident from operations in Vietnam. And I mean that quite literally. They (laughs) reported initially that this had happened uh, southwest of Manila, technically in Indonesian waters. That is not where this happened. (laughs) This happened in the South China Sea, relatively close to the Vietnamese-claimed Spratly Islands. So right away, their first instinct is to say, this was nowhere close to Vietnam. This had nothing to do with the war. This was just us practicing with our friends. This was not a Vietnam-related incident. Yeah, that's not going to backfire. Families actually weren't informed of how their loved ones died. Hmm. The details weren't declassified until 1991. I don't know if the families had waited that long. I don't know if when the basic details came out, Mm -hmm. but those were fully declassified in 1991. Because this accident was classified as outside the area of operations, uh, which was technically just Vietnam itself, none of the dead were actually considered casualties of the war. Wow. So that being the case, they are not on the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. You know, despite their previous service rendered, we talked about before serving in the gun line um, and doing a very good job of that, despite the fact that they were conducting maneuvers that were, in fact, directly connected to projecting power in Vietnam, not considered part of that group, so that they're not included in that. There have been several attempts. There was a bill uh, as recent as 2020 that was put before Congress, and it was a bipartisan bill. It's kind of a it's a big issue, I think, for a lot of a lot of Americans, regardless of which side of the aisle they fall on. I think probably for the veteran demographic, that's a big deal because yeah. you know, regardless of regardless of your thoughts on the Vietnam War, we have a certain there's a certain standard that is shown typically to wartime casualties. Right, right. And that's not really being shown here. And that's after this big cover-up. So um, what was the result of the bill? Did it... To the best of my knowledge, now? it's been introduced but never voted on. Oh, it okay. still shows in the tracker, the Congress tracker thing I was looking at, it shows introduced hmm. but hasn't been, I don't think, ever put to a vote. Interesting. So yeah, I, I kind of had shades uh, reading that whole story. It reminded me a bit of what I know about the Pat Tillman saga. Oh. Um, how, you know, at first... Pat Tillman killed in action. The details were kind of scant, and then it got a little muddy, and then it came out he was killed by friendly fire. Yeah, um, and that's that. That's similar, I guess, to to the situation where families are kind of just told that there's an accident and not really told what happened or even where this happened. Yeah, um, or you know why why their loved ones aren't coming home. Yeah, that's rough. So the officers of the Evans, uh, those those two junior lieutenants. Uh, and Macklemore, they were all officially reprimanded for negligence. Macklemore basically for leaving his ship in charge of people that he should not have. But overall, it seems like their punishment was pretty light. However, John Stevenson of the Melbourne was court-martialed. Wow. Again, this is a bit like what we saw before. There's a lot of sort of distaste for this decision among a lot of Australian personnel uh, in the military, kind of just seeing the captain of the carrier as a scapegoat. This was a uh, definitely a time when they were trying to sort of sweep this under the rug so that it didn't cause a rift between Australia and the United States. Mm-hmm. And so it was basically decided that Australia is going to take the blame for this one <laughs> so that we don't have to officially get in trouble uh, and, and anger the Australian public. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so in this, uh, this inquiry that was made, U.S. Navy Rear Admiral Jerome King was placed in charge, which is a pretty clear conflict of interest. When the basically the goal of this inquiry is to shift blame from the United States to Australia, yeah, uh, that seems like a definite conflict <laughs> of interest. So Stevenson would be acquitted of any wrongdoing, but he resigned his position essentially in protest. 
it was the overwhelming opinion of those really familiar with what happened. It was really the general consensus that there's absolutely nothing that Melbourne could have done differently that would have avoided the accident. And he did the one small thing that it's like, okay, well, let's at least say something. Mm -hmm. And this is, again, this is happening very, very fast. This is a very high-speed collision happening for these uh, ships of this size. So basically, the charges came down to two things in his his court-martial. First, he was blamed for not giving an explicit order to change course. Do you remember how I said his specific words would would come in, would be important later? Watch it, you are on a collision course. Right, so because of the fact that he said, you are on a collision course, and did not follow that with change course, course. uh, he did not follow that with a direct order to change their direction, it was basically, as you can see on a technicality, saying, you didn't give an order for them to change course. That's ridiculous. So... So technically, they didn't do anything contrary to orders, despite the fact that they were violating standing orders yeah. not to turn towards yeah. the carrier. They were already in, yeah. Um, in, in, so again, in that's wrong. that one is kind of, I think most people would agree, is kind of BS, Yeah. given those standing orders. The other one, he was also blamed for not putting his ship into full reverse. Um, also ridiculous. <laughs> again, at the, like the, a train. the proximity of these things, it most people agree that would not have had any effect on what happened here. It's a massive ship trying to stop it very, very quickly. It essentially would have had no effect. The judge who presided over this court-martial even commented, what was he supposed to do? Turn his guns on them? Like, what yeah. What? What else? You know, yeah. short of short of blowing them out of the water, mm-hmm. and even with the, the close quarters, as ridiculous as that sounds, and the speed, probably wouldn't have even been possible had, had that even been an option. Yeah. Um, so anyway, yeah, the idea being wow. there's there's nothing else this guy could have done. So again, the court-martial kind of came up as a formality. Yeah. Uh, the Americans wanted some sort of, you know, officially recorded disgrace, basically, for this captain. Jeez. There was a note, even, though, that when he went into the, the courtroom to hear the verdict read, he knew right away uh, that he would be, he'd be acquitted, he would be found innocent, because when he entered the courtroom, they had his sword there, and it was... Uh. The handle was facing him. The oh, idea being, you'll be able to take this take with back. you. Yeah. Um, hmm. So it, again, it was more of a formality, more of a, a way to officially have something on the books that, like, yes, it seems like the Australian captain did something wrong, even though he was acquitted. Commander Macklemore of the Evans, he would be transferred to shore duty, and he never attained the rank of captain. So he survived, obviously. <laughs> yes. Um, there was one of the articles I used quoted him quite a bit, actually for this, you know, talking about what happened. So he he may still be alive, or he was until pretty recently, I think. There's another tragic story of miscommunication. Actually, one of the other small details I saw, I didn't see this covered as much as an explanation for what happens. Because again, we, we never really get a great one here as to why the ship did what it did. Yeah. Uh, one of them that I saw, however, was, you know, this is a nighttime maneuver. You have two inexperienced officers on the bridge uh, who are making this maneuver that they're not supposed to be doing without the captain being present. A theory is that they thought they were on the other side of the carrier. Which I, I don't know. I mean, it's hope it, that was the case to do something so ridiculous. It sounds ridiculous, but at the same time, it's also ridiculous that one carrier has destroyed two Allied destroyers the exact same way. Right. So one, I mean, and, and if you if you look at how this went down, if you sort of mentally shift the ship over to that other position, this looks like a perfectly executed turn yeah, the uh, for what they're supposed, supposed to, to be it. doing. Do you think they had internalized what had happened with the ship 
uh, the last ship, what was it? The, the Voyager. Uh, the Voyager. Mm-hmm. And, like, in their minds, they, you know, had drilled in, like, what happened, and you have to do the opposite of this. And, mm-hmm. But they were in the opposite situation as them. So maybe, right. like, in this in this moment of panic, they freaked out and yeah. thought, the Voyager did this, they should have done this, I need to do this. Mm-hmm. That's entirely possible. And they should have done the same thing the Voyager that, did. Yeah, thinking that, you know, okay, the, I know that the problem in the Voyager was that she turned to port, but mm-hmm. she should have turned to starboard. So we should turn to starboard. Yeah, just autopilot thinking. Something like, something similar was mentioned that out. the whole internalizing things. You know, if this is hammered in so so much, yeah. you know, if uh, uh, Stevenson is telling everyone, you know, never turn towards the carrier. The Voyager turned to port towards the carrier. Never ever ever do that. Yeah. And so if you internalize that and never do that, yeah, uh, you know, never in this case never turn to port. Yeah. I who knows. Yeah, there was a note saying that uh, one of the one of those junior lieutenants essentially panicked once this was in the process of happening to the point that you know it, it maybe could have been avoided. Again, the destroyer is much more maneuverable, mm-hmm. but it, it really just seems like once that seemed like it was going to happen, this thing that they had, like we said, had hammered into them, like don't do this. Yeah, and then you realize that it's happening. Yeah, one might sort of lose control. Yeah, of the keep compounding the errors. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so I mean that's that's kind of the story. The U.S. Navy did make a training video out of this. <laughs> I believe it's called "I Relieve You, Sir." It's like thirty minutes long. It's on YouTube if you want to watch it. But uh, but yeah, I mean obviously this had a big impact on the U.S. Navy uh, for how to interact with allied vessels, how to interact with carriers. Yeah, because trying not to have something like this happen again a third time. Yeah. So that's really it. That's kind of the story of the uh, the HMS or the HMAS Melbourne. And the USS Frank E. Evans. So we're happy to bring you a little bit of, you know, extra content about that that we couldn't quite fit into the show. So yeah, this is a fun one. I enjoy yeah. recording these with Katie. It's kind of fun to, to do these. Yes, uh, yeah. yeah. Actually, it's, it's kind of fun to just to do them in person with someone rather than True. online. Yeah. Yeah. We're right next to each other. But uh, Touching your leg. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it's good. We hope you enjoyed this one. Again, there's, um, there's some resources that I'll share via Patreon you know, think are interesting or, or helped me put together this episode. These are a little bit less, I don't know, a little bit less formal, not quite as well put together, but, uh, but we, we like bringing a little bit of extra information to the table here. So until you hear from me next, take care, everyone. And uh, yeah, we look forward to, to bringing you some more content soon.